0: Podcast, crashing into a comet near you, with Tom Armitage, Adam Avison, Claire Bretherton, Fiona Healy, Moni Kempson, Mateusz Malenta, Minnie Mao, Max Potter, Tom Stry, Damian Trim, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast, October 2016 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Fiona, and joining me here in the studio today are Max Potter and Adam Avison.
1: Hello, hello. So in the show this time. We have Monique interviewing Professor Vic Dillon about high-speed astronomy, and Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the October night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Matthias with this month's news.
2: In the news this month, we say our final goodbye to the Rosetta space probe, and look back at its great journey towards the comet 67P. We prepare for a journey to Mars and beyond with SpaceX interplanetary transport system, and take a look at the subsurface ocean on Jupiter's moon Europa. But first, Rosetta spacecraft has reached its final resting place on the surface of the comet 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko after planned crash on Friday, the 30th of September, 2016. Launched to space more than 12 years ago, the main aim of the mission was to study comets which are believed to remain almost unchanged since the beginning of our solar system some 4 to 5 billion years ago, therefore providing a unique insight into its history and evolution. Getting to 67P was not an easy task, and the whole endeavour was under threat from every direction from the very beginning. The launch of the spacecraft was delayed by more than a year due to technical difficulties with ESA's Ariane 5 rocket. As a result of this delay, The original destination, comet 46P, had to be abandoned, and 67P was chosen instead. During its journey, the spacecraft underwent four risky gravity assist manoeuvres that allowed it to achieve the velocity necessary for reaching its destination, far beyond the orbit of Mars. During its trip throughout the solar system, Rosetta visited two asteroids, 2867 Steins and 21 Lutetia. Both of these encounters were used to apply small corrections to the spacecraft's trajectory and to test and fine tune the onboard instruments. On the 6th of August 2014, Rosetta finally reached its destination in the neighborhood of the comet 67P Churyumov Gerasimenko. After the series of complicated orbital maneuvers, it entered the proper orbit around the comet on the 10th of September 2014, becoming the first ever space probe to orbit a comet. The mission made headlines again, a couple of months later, on the 12th of November, when the lander of Philae detached from Rosetta and became the first ever man-made object to successfully land on the surface of the comet. Unfortunately, the landing was not as smooth as everyone had hoped for. Feely bounced off the surface of 67p twice and landed in the shadow of a crater. This meant a limited amount of sunlight was able to reach the lander's solar panels, severely limiting its capabilities. With the scientific operations planned to last at least a couple of weeks, Feely was able to gather data for only about 57 hours, before all communication was lost, thanks to the onboard battery designed to last around two days, the primary scientific operations were completed with data from all ten scientific instruments on board the lander successfully transferred back to Earth. After a long period of silence, communication with the lander was re-established on the thirteenth of June, twenty fifteen, and lasted about a month until ninth of July when Philae became silent again. That was the last time scientists and engineers at the European Space Agency were able to talk to the little lander that could. On the 27th of July 2016, the interface used for communications between Philae and Rosetta was switched off, bringing the end to the little lander's mission. On the 2nd of September this year, the lander was successfully photographed for the first time by the Rosetta spacecraft images sent back to Earth explain why Philae was not able to perform its duties for longer than a bit more than two days. The lander was found to be wedged against a large formation and covered in the shadow. With 67P getting further away from the sun every day, the lack of sufficient amount of sunlight that would allow Rosetta to perform its scientific duties was becoming an issue. If left on its own, the spacecraft, would eventually run out of power and either crash onto the surface of the comet, with scientists having no control over its descent trajectory and not being able to gather and receive any useful data, or become a free-floating object in our solar system and not a piece of space junk. It was therefore decided that a controlled crash onto the surface of the comet would be the best solution. During the descent, Rosetta would be able to collect valuable data and send it back to Earth. On the 30th of September, the probe crash-landed onto 67P. Although it approached the surface at speeds not exceeding one meter per second for most of the descent, the probe was most probably badly damaged and the signal from the spacecraft was lost around noon UK time. As it approached the surface of the comet, Rosetta instruments were kept busy analysing gas and dust, as well as taking multiple high-resolution pictures. Even though the mission encountered some problems along the way, scientists are still poring through massive amounts of data that both Rosetta and Philly send back to Earth. Although it will take at least a few more years to interpret all of it, The preliminary results confirm that comets are indeed more than 4 billion years old and therefore come from the times of solar system formation and its early evolution. Organic molecules were found by both Rosetta and Philae. This provides evidence for the theory that some of the organic compounds were brought to the surface of the Earth through collisions with comets during the early stages of the solar system's existence. The European Space Agency was also very successful in engaging and informing the public about the mission and its findings. With a series of cartoons and animated videos, ESA is hoping to inspire younger members of the public to become future scientists and engineers that maybe one day will launch another successful mission that will explore the history of the Sun and the planets around it. Elon Musk, the founder and CEO of SpaceX, took the stage on Tuesday the 27th of September when he announced his plans for the colonization of Mars and the outer solar system during the International Astronautical Congress in Guadalajara, Mexico. This is the second time the company made headlines in the last few weeks after one of its Falcon 9 rockets was lost in the explosion during the September 1st test fire. Even though this is the second rocket lost by SpaceX in the last 15 months and the cause of the most recent incident is not known even a month later, the company and its CEO do not seem to stop. Mars has been a destination for the potential human colony since at least the Apollo-era space program. The progress, however, has been very slow, and no human has been further than the low-earth orbit since the last landing on the moon in the 1972. However, things may change in the next decade. During his talk, Musk shared his vision for demand exploration of Mars and beyond. It would be based on a new rocket the company is currently designing, the Interplanetary Transport System. This 122 meter tall spacecraft is meant to be powered by 42 Raptor engines which are expected to provide more than three times the thrust generated by the Saturn V rocket. The whole design is based around the full reusability which is expected to bring the launch course down to the manageable levels. The 50-meter-tall interplanetary spaceship, capable of carrying 100 explorers to the surface of Mars, would be launched to the Earth's orbit on top of the reusable booster. The booster would then return back to Earth and be prepared for another mission. In the meantime, the spaceship would be refueled in orbit using a tanker delivered by another reusable booster. Full reusability is expected to bring the launch price to around $200,000 per person, which would represent a huge saving as compared to an estimated cost of at least tens of millions of dollars per person with NASA's planned space launch system. Members of the private and government space sector, including Boeing's CEO, Dennis Lulenberg, Blue Origin's CEO and founder, Jeff Bezos, and various members of the US Congress, as well as members of the public, raised a lot of questions regarding the feasibility of these ambitious plans. SpaceX's estimated budget is around $10 billion to develop and build the first rocket. Some industry experts, however, have already warned that the real cost might be as much as two to three times higher than that. The company also relies quite heavily on the funding from NASA at the moment through various contracts for delivery of goods and ultimately humans to the International Space Station. The future of this relationship became a great unknown as NASA is investing a lot of time and money into development of its space launch system which is ultimately meant to carry humans to Mars and may see Musk's ITS as a direct competition. With the first launch planned for 2024, which is only 8 years from now, the company needs to start looking for serious investors and support, both in private sector and government. Despite all the obstacles, uncertain future and recent setbacks with the flagship Falcon 9 rocket, the work is already underway. The company is investing millions of dollars every year into technologies that will eventually be used in the interplanetary transport system. Two days before his presentation, Elon Musk had announced the first successful firing of the new Raptor engine and during his speech he revealed pictures of the new liquid oxygen tank made out of carbon fibre components. Even with all the developments, it is quite unlikely that the company will meet its 2024 deadline. Elon Musk himself acknowledged that this would be a difficult and almost impossible task. And if establishing the first Martian colony in about a decade from now does not sound ambitious enough, Musk shared his vision of colonizing the outer solar system with his new rocket, with Saturn's Enceladus and Jupiter's Europa as primary targets. And if you think that Europa might not be the best destination for the interplanetary colony, Jupiter's fourth largest moon is believed to harbor a large ocean of liquid water under a thick shell of ice on its surface. New results from the Hubble Space Telescope provide more evidence to support this theory. Scientists from the team led by William Sparks from the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore believe that they have found the evidence of water vapor plumes erupting off the surface of Europa. This is the second time such plumes have been observed. In 2012, another team, again using the Hubble Space Telescope, has found an evidence of water vapor eruptions shooting into space at a height of more than 150 kilometers. Both teams used the same instrument, the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph, but implemented different methods to analyze the data and estimate the amount of material in the plumes, and have both arrived at similar conclusions. This shows that Europa can indeed eject large amounts of water vapour from under its thick and solid frozen crust. This is especially important for future planned unmanned missions to the surface of Jupiter's moon. One of the biggest engineering challenges is the development of tools that would be capable of drilling through many kilometers of ice in order to reach the liquid ocean underneath it and study it, looking for any signs of life. The existence of plumes which are estimated to eject more than 5,000 kilograms of water per second gives scientists new opportunities to study the depths of Europa's ocean without the need to actually drill into the surface. As the design for the new space probe is now underway, more work has to be done to learn more about the nature of these water vapour plums. Scientists would like to know whether they occur in regular intervals and if they ever repeat in the same place, or if they are rather random and unpredictable events. If they were found to be bound to a specific regions on the surface of Europa, then the target selection for the future lander would become a much easier task.
3: Thanks for that, Matthias. Now Monique interviews Professor Vic Dillon about high-speed astronomy.
4: Hi, I'm here with Vic Dillon from the University of Sheffield. Hi, Vic. Hello. Um, and you just gave a great talk on the high-speed universe um, today, and we've actually had you on the broadcast before as well in 2009. So um, it's not your first time here.
5: No, no, it's nice to nice to come again and update everyone on what we've we've been doing since.
4: Hmm. Um, so to start off with, um, would you be able to talk about what you mean by high speed? It's not something we really think about too often in astronomy. It's
5: very much from a perspective of optical astronomer, someone who uses visible light for astronomy. Because I'm, I'm aware high speed. If you're a radio astronomer, for example, is something you do naturally. Everything's involved. Everything involves very high speeds. But for, for optical astronomy, traditionally, when you take an image of the sky they tend to be taken no faster than at a rate of about once per minute because that's as fast as you can run the large CCD cameras that are used to take optical images. And so we define high speed as things which are significantly faster than one image every minute. So one image every millisecond, maybe up to one image every second, that kind of range, that's what we define as high speed.
4: And what kind of objects would you be looking at with that kind of time variability?
5: the only things which vary on time scales of seconds down to milliseconds are small things large things simply physically cannot vary as fast as that we're primarily interested in what are called compact objects so that's the dead remnants of stars when when a stars die they they form one of three things a white dwarf a neutron star or a black hole depending on the original mass of the star those objects are all extremely small so a white dwarf's the size of the earth a neutron star's the size of a city as is a black hole, a stellar mass black hole is the size of a city roughly. Those kind of objects spin or pulsate or things orbit around them on timescales of seconds down to milliseconds. So if you want to study those objects, you need to be observing them on those kind of timescales to really understand what's going on.
4: Oh, okay, that makes sense. So what kind of got you into this field of like high-speed objects? If it wasn't something you really couldn't do before in optical, what gave
5: you? Yeah, that's interesting, actually. So it was my very first observing run with my supervisor on La Palma in the Canary Islands, and we were on a telescope there, which, which had one of the early CCD cameras, because they only really came into astronomy in the 80s. Hmm. Um, this was 88. It was frustrating. We were trying to observe a binary star where... Um, you have two stars in very close orbit, and this was an eclipsing one where one star passes in front of the other one mm. and you have a dip in the light and That eclipse occurred on a time scale of about half an hour or something That's pretty fast <laughs> yeah pretty pretty quickly it went down and up in half an hour mm. and we wanted to really resolve it and see how it changed in brightness in detail we just didn't we didn't just want one or two data mm. points showing it's this bright this time and this bright that time. We wanted a number of data points in this Mm -hmm. eclipse, and it was frustrating how slow everything was. Instrumentation was clearly not optimized for people who wanted to take short exposures with small gaps between the exposures. There were stupid things like you take an image, and then you'd wait forever for the image to appear on the screen, and only when the image appeared on the screen could you then hit return and take your next data point. Stupid things like that, you know, where we didn't really care about what the image looked like. We, We just wanted to take the next data frame.
4: I don't think I have realised that's even how CCDs work. It originally, it was. I mean, they're much better <laughs> yeah. now.
5: This was 1988, so mm. it was really the early days. And that, from that original frustration, we we, we tried everything we could to speed things up mm. because it's what our science uh, that we wanted to do uh,
4: required. Um. So you didn't actually start off on like an instrumentation side at all. And, or...
5: Well, I was work. I did my PhD at the Royal Greenwich Observatory, which mm. is now gone, but it was the. Home of instruments and instrument building and telescope building in the UK in the 80s and and before that. Mm. Since then, that's been taken over by universities. But up to that point, it, it was where it was all done. So I was surrounded. I was an astronomer. I was studying stars, but I was surrounded by people who built instruments and detectors and telescopes. So it certainly helped it. You're mm. uh, in the future, right place future, for it, definitely. Yeah, future
4: yeah. friends, yeah. Oh, okay. And so all of this um, led you to um, working on Ultracam, which you talked about last time you were on the Jodcast a little bit. That's
5: right, because we, we'd well, we commissioned it about three, four years before 2002, 2003. We'd, we, we'd first started using it. So I spoke about the early years of uh, Ultracam when yeah. I came here last time. Yeah.
4: So could you, um, for those of our listeners who haven't heard that ep- episode in quite a while, could you refresh their memories of what Ultracam is and what your... Goals were with it.
5: Yeah. So, our goal was simply to build a, an instrument which was optimized images as fast as possible of the night sky with as mm. shorter a gap as possible. And we realized with the technology available at that time that we would be able to build something that would take an image probably every five milliseconds. That's the fastest it can go. So, 200 frames every second. And we also realized that when you're studying how things change in brightness in the sky. It's useful to know if the blue light changes differently to the red light. Blue light tends to come from hotter gas, red light from cooler gas. So if you see something varying strongly in blue light and not so strongly in red light, you know Mm. that what's varying is hot material, which gives you an extra constraint on the nature of what's going on.
4: It gives you a bit more information about the object. Yeah. Yeah.
5: So we designed Ultracam to be uh, three cameras, which will simultaneously observe in the red, the green and the blue part of the optical spectrum. Mm -hmm. And each camera would simultaneously be able to take up to 300 frames every second. We designed it to put it on the largest telescopes in the world at that time, which were the William Herschel Telescope on La Palma Mm -hmm. and then the Very Large Telescope in Chile. They're among the biggest telescopes in the world. We were really able to start uh, observing faint objects because we're getting lots of light collected by these big telescopes. Mm-hmm. And and also, of course, when you take short exposures, you don't get much light. So mm. you need to have need a big telescope, big telescope to, to get enough light in, that, mm-hmm. in the short exposure.
4: Yeah, so you mentioned in your talk, and you kind of hinted at it there, that your um, instrument's like a visitor instrument. So you take it from the telescope to telescope wherever you want to observe. Um, so I, I didn't actually know that that was a thing um, before you mentioned it, which I found really interesting. But did that make it more difficult when you're designing your instrument because it's got to... It's got to be easily transportable. It's, you've got to be able to actually attach it or put it in place in those telescopes. What kind of challenges did you face with that? No, that's
5: exactly right. You, you, you said the main challenge is that actually it's got to be something that's uh, reasonably small and easy to handle so mm. that you you know that you can uh, easily move it between one telescope and another. Uh, normal instruments, they're they're built for one telescope. You go and install them and that's it. You never move them again. They, they're there mm. for a decade. We had to build in... Uh, well, we basically had to make sure it was as compact and lightweight as possible. So, uh, and it, and you'll see, you've seen for the pictures. I think it's, it's only about a meter mm. long, uh, and it only weighs about eighty kilos.
4: Wow, that's really impressive. So it's, re- it's really light yeah. compared
5: to if you compare it to the other instruments on the VLT, which are mm-hmm. kind of small truck-sized and weigh yeah. multiple tons. It, it really is very small. You can um, fit
4: that in an airplane seat next to you. Yeah, not that well, you would, but you yeah, could. Well, right? int-
5: interestingly, we we do air freight. <laughs> Oh, because okay. that's an important factor. Because I mean, sea freight to Chile takes forever. I, I and, was imagining
4: you shipping it around the world and having yeah, to wait, you know, a long yeah. time. Yeah, that's actually
5: a factor because there's a maximum size that you can air freight. Oh, right. Uh, on standard, you know, mm-hmm. uh, non-military <laughs> uh, planes, and uh, so uh, that we that was a factor built into the, the design. We had to make sure it was small enough that it would fit into a standard-sized packing c- container that they use for airplanes. So yeah, uh, and there's. There's a lot of um, effort goes into liaising with the observatory staff to make sure your interfaces are, so everything's are correct. Everything's got to match up and, exactly, yeah. both mechanically, software-wise, mm-hmm. elect- electro- electrically, uh, in every respect. You've got to have careful communication with the observatory to make sure that when you finally arrive out there with all your equipment. It all fits. It's actually, going to work and yeah, and yeah, not
4: travelled halfway across the world. Yeah. And,
5: but telescopes mm-hmm. are very. All the ones we've used anyway are very um, accommodating to visitor instruments. They mm-hmm. realise that it adds something um, uh, important to the um, suite of uh, of things that a telescope can do. Yeah, to to allow people to come along with their own mm-hmm. uh, own instruments um, for niche pro- niche projects, which which mm. ours is. Um, so so that 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 helps. You know that they're very accommodating.
4: Yeah, no, that, that's mm. it. Sounds pretty incredible to be honest. Mm. Um, and just as an idea, because I mean, this is something I always wonder about. Because um, I'm not an observational astronomer either, at all, and um, so I have no idea how much anything costs. Like, roughly, how much did UltraCam cost? Like, just the building of the
5: instrument. Yeah, so in, in the year two thousand, prices it was three hundred thousand pounds.
4: That's pretty cheap, right? That's... Yeah, for a national <laughs>
5: instrument for a really big telescope. Yeah, it, it's it's very cheap. You'd probably be talking. Ten times that much, typically. Yeah. So it was pretty cheap. Although I must say we did get quite a lot of free, yeah. free staff effort from both people at Sheffield, at mm-hmm. Warwick, and at uh, the UK Astronomy Technology Centre in Edinburgh. Yeah. We we benefited hugely from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in reality...
4: If you included all those man hours, it, it, yeah. it would have been
5: quite a bit more, but uh, yeah. Yeah.
4: That's that's still pretty impressive when you mm. think about it. Um, it's a very cheap instrument. Yeah, and, and, and it was yeah.
5: funded by uh, the Research Council, the mm. STFC. Yeah, they. they...
4: Um, and I mean, I think you said in your talk that you got about hundred papers so far have come from at least yeah. data related to that, which yeah. is, that's I mean, that's a lot of science so for... Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's
5: been good, uh, and you know that's that's been largely because we've we've been quite open with mm. the use of the instrument. We uh, although it's a private instrument, so we have to go out. Mount it on the telescope, Someone's got to physically do that. We have yep. to take the data with it because mm-hmm. uh, only we know how to use it and fix it if it goes wrong. But we have uh, been um, very open to other people contacting us and saying, actually, there's a really interesting thing we'd like to do. Can mm. we do that? And we say, yeah, sure, that's fine. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's let's try it. And uh, the majority of the, of the papers have been actually from external mm. users from outside Sheffield and Warwick.
4: But yeah. it, I mean, from your talk, it looks like that's really paid off because you've got such a rich amount of stuff in there, like so many right. different objects. Exactly. Um, that yeah. I thought it was really amazing. Yeah,
5: so. uh, Tom Marsh, my collaborator uh, and I, who who uh, who started the Ultracran project off, we we're predominantly interested in white dwarf binary stars. Mm. So, anything to do with that—that's what we did. But uh, as you heard from the talk, the stuff to do with black holes and exoplanets, and mm-hmm. that tended to be led by other. Solar system objects as well yeah. that tends to be led, led by by other other mm-hmm. groups, which we've found very rewarding. You know, it's been much much more interesting for us to do a really to wide of range of yeah. science, quite exciting kind of observations.
4: Mm-hmm. So, what kind of um, work have you done with the looking at white dwarf binaries?
5: Yeah, so um, the one of, one of the more interesting things um, recently has been we've um, well looking at white dwarf binaries has been um, uh, an interesting object called NN Serpentis which is a white dwarf which is orbited by a, an M-dwarf. They're separated by about a solar radius.
2: That's uh, pretty close. And mm. orbit
5: each other about once every three hours. And the orbit's inclined to Earth's line of sight such that we see an eclipse once every three hours as the very faint M-dwarf passes in front of the very bright white dwarf. Mm. You get a big dip in the light.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, and by measuring the, the shape of that, uh, that eclipse, actually timing it, we're able to work out with other information the size of the white dwarf and so that was one of the goals of the project was to um, to start systematically measuring the sizes of white dwarfs Mm. because it was something that was really relatively poorly known and this eclipse technique gives you very precise measurements and we also timed the uh, eclipses over the course of many years and naively you'd think well the two stars are orbiting and so then every eclipse occurs uh, an eclipse occurs every three hours And so naively you'd think, okay, well, every three hours that eclipse occurs. So if I observe it in two years' time, then I've got, you know, X times three hours' worth of time has elapsed, and I should then find my eclipse occurring.
4: You should be able to predict it very,
5: yeah. Uh, But that doesn't happen in reality. There's a number of effects which cause the orbit of the binary to Mm. change. And one effect we knew about was that the two stars should be shrinking their orbit. They should be actually getting closer to each other and the time it takes for them to orbit each other, reduce, which means that the interval between the eclipses reduces. Mm-hmm. So actually in, you observe an eclipse and then a, years la- a year later you, you time that eclipse and it doesn't occur, it, when you expect it, it occurs actually much sooner. Because,
4: So how what what causes that you know, uh, uh, so period to the, the, the
5: effect we, we thought we knew about was, was the uh, there's two effects. One is the emission of gravitational waves. Ah. So that extracts energy from the uh, mm-hmm. binary and causes them the two stars to approach each other. Another effect is called magnetic braking, which is the, the the M-dwarf star has a, a stellar wind, just like mm. the sun has a solar wind, and particles are streaming out mm-hmm. along the magnetic field lines of this wind. And because the star's rotating, the particles are flung out by along the magnetic field line, but they're charged, they're stuck to the field line as they fly out and yeah. exert a, a breaking torque on the oh, spin right, of wow. the star. It's the same reason the... The sun slowed now down to its present quite slow. Rotation approximate, speed, approximate yeah. a month-long kind of rotation speed. It was oh, actually yeah. born in a much faster uh, rotation rate. And this magnetic breaking effect slowed the spin of the sun down to its present rate. Same effects believed to believed to occur in lots of stars. Mm. And uh, so that effectively extracts angular momentum from the binary and causes the two stars to spiral in. So we knew about that effect and we wanted to measure how strong it was. Mm. So that was a goal of measuring an eclipse of that binary every few months
4: mm-hmm. so did you and see we've that, done that for a
5: decade we've now done that for a decade and then well to our surprise when we then plotted out the time that the eclipse occurred compared to when we predicted it would occur assuming mm. nothing was you know changing we saw not a steady decrease in the orbital period but yeah. actually a cyclical change oh right in wow. the in the orbital period so that sometimes it got a bit longer sometimes it got a bit shorter
4: mm-hmm.
5: people started speculating actually oh, this could be due to the presence of Big planet, Jupiter-sized planets mm. orbiting the binary, which are pulling the uh, the two stellar components at the centre, oh,
4: uh, and
5: causing slightly the, the, changing slightly the changing orbit, the timing yeah. of the orbit. Yeah, and it looks like that's the case. So we've we've taken some data recently, which really seems to confirm that that there are two planets orbiting bigger than Jupiter, more massive mm. than Jupiter, and orbiting about Jupiter-type distances from the star wow. for the stars, the binary star. Yeah, mm. so. To our surprise, we discovered planets when we weren't looking. <laughs> yeah, no,
4: that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And around like a, a, a white dwarf system as well, yeah, so which so is not, some, binaries, not, not yeah. something you normally think about. And because um, the binaries
5: are very close, so so mm. you've got an M dwarf and a white dwarf with only a solar radius apart, mm. and the planets are
4: really five quite far out, yeah. units
5: out. It's a stable configuration.
4: Wow, you yeah, you wouldn't yeah. imagine that that could be yeah. a stable yeah. thing. I mean, that's wow, that's very cool though. So, yeah. So yeah, you didn't even intend to find planets, but you still no, did anyway. No, it was a nice surprise. So, did you intend to do anything with planets at all with the telescope before you built it? Sorry, telescope, the instrument before you built it, or
5: um, no? Because when I can't remember the very first transiting exoplanet, mm. I think was pretty much around the, uh, the turn of the century. Uh,
4: yeah, it's true. It's a very new science. Yeah, the first yeah. exoplanet was discovered
5: mm-hmm. in ninety five, but that was uh, the first transiting ones were mm-hmm. five or six years at least years later than that it was hd two hundred uh, and nine two four five eight. 458 i remember and good so, memory <laughs> yeah, well so so yeah we, we did try and observe that one actually straight away because yeah. these transiting ones that was perfect for us because mm-hmm. we, we, we had a we had a multi-channel multicolor instrument which yep. is we're on a big telescope so we get very precise photometry and mm-hmm. it, they're, they're very small dips you know there's only a one percent drop in light when mm. the planet goes in front of the star so you need pretty accurate photometry to yeah to, to which you've so got small dip, mm-hmm. which we have yeah because we've mm-hmm. got lots of photons
4: yep yeah on a big telescope yeah. Ah. yeah i do often forget how recent exoplanet science
3: is yeah actually yeah.
4: or even i think even just when i was in school remembering you know there was maybe a, a couple of hundred of exoplanets and yeah. now it's there's a thousands
3: yep. many exo- yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs>
5: yeah and um and most recently we've, we've also been studying the, the smaller things of exoplanets around mm-hmm. other stars so these uh, kind that we've found um, Oh yeah
4: you're saying exo asteroids
5: Yeah I called it that on the uh, over yeah. on the overhead we don't really know the um the, the, the that project was um, actually it was discovered by uh, Kepler mm. um the it's a white dwarf which um no, the white dwarf is um the, the an earth sized object which is basically the the core of the star which preceded Mm-hmm. It's the end at the end of a star's life. It will shed its outer envelope, and what will be left will be a white dwarf. The sun will become a white dwarf yep. at the end of its life after its red giant stage. So you might ask, well, what happens to all the planets that are currently around the sun when it evolves mm. to to become a, a, good point. a red giant? <laughs> well, what will happen is the planets will move outwards. That the ones, well, some of them will be engulfed as the mm. star expands to a red giant. Certainly. Mercury and Venus, and maybe We'd the just Earth, be gone. Yeah. Yeah, um, and then the outer planets actually will move outwards in response to the uh, uh, to, uh, to the expansion okay. of the star. So somehow, after after this process, what you end up left with is, is this white dwarf. Some the, there must be some kind of remnants of the original planetary system.
4: It's got to be there orbit around it. Yeah. Yeah. And
5: so, what what's interesting is white dwarfs, just isolated white dwarfs lying there on their own in mm. the sky, have been um, have had their spectra measured, and you find that there's heavy metals in the spectrum, heli- um, things like magnesium, aluminium, iron, for example, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't expect to find these these elements present in the surface because you're seeing the surface of the white dwarf when you take the spectrum Yeah. because spe- the white dwarf's got uh, quite strong gravity. Mm-hmm. It's composed primarily of helium, and these the heavier elements should sink to the core gravitationally. So they shouldn't uh, last
4: uh, on the surface?
5: No, uh, and the timescale for that to happen is... Much much shorter than the life of the white dwarf, hmm. so the average white dwarf you look at there it should have been plenty be of all. time for this yeah. stuff to shrink, but yet we see something like forty percent, I think, is the latest figure of white dwarfs really? show wow. this enhancement. So it seems to be there's a constant stream of material falling onto the white dwarfs to replenish mm-hmm. this, and this material must be pretty heavy elements, mm-hmm. so kind of rocky type material. So there's there's indirect evidence that there's stuff raining down onto white dwarfs. People have also found measured white dwarfs in the infrared. White dwarfs are very hot. They shouldn't have very much light in the infrared, mm. but yet some showing an excess of light in the infrared over and above what you'd expect. And that's been interpreted as being evidence for the presence of a debris disk of cool oh, material okay. orbiting the White Dwarf. Mm. You can't see it, but you can detect it. its, it's just cool infrared light. So this object we've found is really the final confirmation that this picture is correct because we've mm-hmm. now... It's like the uh, last piece in the puzzle. I should say, it? we didn't find it. Someone else found it, but mm-hmm. we, we, fo- we followed it up and, and observed it with our high-speed... Uh, Photometers and found um, numerous dips in Mm. the brightness of the star over the course of a four and a half hour period. So these dips seem to. It's quite quick as well. Yeah, Yeah, so they're really close. Um, So these dips seem to repeat every approximately four and a half hours. But there's lots and lots of such dips. There isn't just one dip every four mm. and a half hours. There's one dip, and then there's another dip for half an hour later, another dip for half an hour later, and if you follow each one of those individual dips, each mm. one will then repeat four and a half hours later.
4: And so it's lots of smaller things yeah, so rather than, than one
5: transiting. A, a, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's lots of material strung out in a kind of ring mm. around the object, happens to be just at the right line of angle to our line that of, we of see sight to see it, it yeah. see it go across the face of the white dwarf. So really, it's final confirmation that these debris disks exist, and actually explaining how it got there is quite difficult. We speculate a little bit about it in the paper, but there's mm-hmm. we're not certain. It seems to require quite a high element of fine-tuning to get exactly what we're seeing to be there. Ah. So so we're, we're, jury's still out for exactly how these things are, are, evolve.
4: So do you think you might do a follow-up to see, well, not not on that object, to see on other white dwarf systems where metal, they've found an excess of metals to see if you find a similar thing?
5: Or? Yeah, I mean, I think... That will probably be found naturally through. There's so many wide field surveys coming mm. up now, um, both running now and even more so in the future. They're going to be picked up by those. Mm-hmm. So really, the instruments we've built, we're we're really good. We're not good for finding things. We're good Just for, for following up things and mm-hmm. do things in real detail. Yep. So we rely on these surveys to to find mm-hmm. things like Kepler to find these interests. to tell you where to look. Yeah, and then we yeah. then we go with that. that that's mm. what we do. We're a kind of follow up tool.
4: Because I suppose if it turns out that that. That forty percent of white dwarfs that have a high metal content um, on the surface—if it finds out—if it turns out that most of those seem to have this uh, ring of debris, mm. then it can't be the fine tuning that's causing it. You'd think it might—it'd have to be some other mechanism. Yeah, yeah,
5: yeah. yeah. Sure. Uh, uh, the, the thing with those other objects that you you, you just mentioned, is we we don't know how close the, the material is to the white dwarf, um, mm. whereas on this one we do. We know it's really close, mm-hmm. um, we know it must be almost circular orbits. So. It, it, it's it got an extra set, set of constraints because we know more about it that seem quite difficult to understand.
4: Oh, uh, I see. So it's, yeah, so it's kind of... But a... Yeah,
5: it, but you're right. I, the only thing that will help will actually find more systems, see what, see mm-hmm. how they vary and, uh, and try and also get some idea of what exactly is doing the obscuring. We still, still don't really know whether mm-hmm. it, it's the size of the objects that are doing the obscuring. It seems mm-hmm. to be the objects must be surrounded by some kind of cloud of gas and dust. Mm-hmm. But then how big are the underlying objects the dust is kind of coming off of
4: and how how would you actually find that out
5: so what one way is um through multicolour observations
4: oh, so
5: seeing... you um the, the amount of light that's absorbed by some obscuring mm-hmm. cloud if it's just scattering that's causing the the dip of light yep that'd be something like rayleigh scattering the same mm-hmm. thing that goes on in our earth's atmosphere to make the sky blue and so you'd expect the, there's a strong wavelength dependence of blue light scatter more than yeah. red. And, mm-hmm. and actually, the amount of dip of light that you see, how much deeper it is in blue mm-hmm. than red, tells you something about not only that it's then likely to be dust, but what the kind of size of the grains are that ah, are causing the, di- the, the, dips, mm-hmm. the dips. So, yeah.
4: So that would be perfect for your yes. new projects. Yes. Um exactly. which you should move on to. Um HyperCam. Yeah. Which is handily named. Um so could you tell us a bit more about that? Um
5: Yeah, so we um we were aware with UltraCam that it's been now running for, actually getting on for fifteen years actually, since wow. first light. Mm. It was based on the year two thousand technology, that's when we designed it. Mm. Since then things have improved quite a bit in every respect. The optics, detectors, electronics, um telescopes as well have got mm. better. So we thought the time was right. Fifteen years on, let's let's. What could we do if we built a new instrument? What would we want to do? Yeah. How would we improve Ultracam? And there were clear. There was a clear number of um, items where we that we identified that that we said, yeah, we could definitely improve. For example, how sensitive the instrument is in the red yep. part of the spectrum. We could definitely improve the speed by quite a large factor, maybe up to. F- factor of five times faster we could go now with the latest detectors and wow. electronics we could have a bigger field of view because the detectors are larger mm-hmm. now and uh, we're also trying to put it on really the biggest telescopes we can so the biggest one of all being the 10.4 meter grand telescopio canarias and the canary islands so combination of all of these things should really help us to push p- push what we're doing you know, mm-hmm. m- much further Get observe much fainter examples of each of these objects and Observe objects we simply cannot really do at the moment because we can't either go fast enough or Mm -hmm. deep enough.
4: Have you got any particular objects in mind um, for that?
5: Yeah. um, One one class of object we're keen to do more on are are, are pulsars. Mm -hmm. So neutron stars, isolated neutron stars, they're tiny objects, uh, very hot, tend to have very low levels of light in the optical. Mm. Um, So there's only a handful that we can do with Ultracam. I think we've done three or four with Ultracam. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thousands are known. So the combination of Hypercam on the GTC will really open Mm -hmm. up many more examples of such systems that we can do. Another type of object that we've struggled to do well anything in the red has been difficult to do in the far red of the spectrum because
4: ultra was it's less not efficient in the red yeah it. i mean it's 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 reasonably
5: good but it's mm. it, it could be a lot better and also it suffers from fringing when you go really in the far red mm. it's an effect fringing is an effect you see it's like a kind of stripy pattern that you get on um, on the ccd detector which think, is uh, mm. an artifact of um, scattering of of the light from the sky in the detector and what it does is it, it tends to swamp your your object signal and mm. uh, makes it harder to see very small changes in brightness. So, for example, if you're trying to detect an exoplanet, when an exoplanet goes behind its host star, there's a tiny drop in light because you stop seeing this light from the exoplanet. Ho- uh, from the very exoplanet. Small extra, and yeah, the exoplanets tend to be quite cool, mm-hmm. so the light's red. So you need to look in the red and you, look, you need to look for tiny dips, but you're trying to find these tiny dips in the red amongst this mm-hmm. this uh, stripy fringing pattern yeah i think you it's showed really an image difficult.
4: and it looked like ripples yeah kind of in in the actual image exactly um, i yeah. did wonder how you would see anything yeah, in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
5: so so hypercam the detectors we've we've um, procured it for hypercam have various special manufacturing techniques applied to them which now yeah. are available to to remove um, fringing ah,
4: so cool. so mm-hmm. that
5: kind of project will become much easier to do
4: mm-hmm.
5: um, some things will become possible that simply weren't before
4: you also said that Ultracam was less sensitive in the red. Yes. Was that just because CCDs are generally less sensitive in the red, or was that to do with your actual instrument design? Uh,
5: no, it's to do with the CCDs uh, uh, that we used in Ultracam, which mm. were, as I said, year 2000 devices. Yep. They've improved a lot. And there's a new type of CCD called a deep depletion mm-hmm. CCD. Uh, not that new now, but you know, certainly weren't available when we were building Hypercam, Ultracam. And these are now available. So... They they more than double the the amount of light that's recorded in the red mm-hmm. part of the spectrum by a CCD.
4: So you'll see a big difference.
5: Yeah, a re- really huge difference. I mean, a mm-hmm. factor of two is you know, enormous. You, mm. you have to ha- have quite a large increase in telescope aperture to make such a change. So just by changing the detector to get it is mm-hmm. real real bonus. You know. Yeah,
4: so yeah. that's a good point. Something we actually, I think, when people talk about telescopes, they forget about that side of it. just yeah. think we just want a bigger telescope. So yeah. well. you can also look at the instrumentation side. Yeah, oh, that's mm-hmm. a good point. So what are your kind of main science goals with hypercamera? What kind of things do you desperately want to study? Other than pulsars, I should say.
5: Yeah. um, I think um, there's a number. I think Mm. they cover all compact objects. So I think we want to carry on our work on the white dwarf Mm -hmm. systems because the the, the field of white dwarfs is about to be revolutionized by um, the Gaia satellite, which is currently taking data At the moment it's doing a survey of kind of a billion stars in the Milky Way Mm -hmm. and it's going to find huge numbers of, I mean, hundreds of thousands of new white dwarfs.
4: It's kind of unprecedented really. Yeah, and
5: amongst those are going to be some, I mean, you saw some examples I showed today of Mm. some white dwarfs have got planets around them, some have got these debris disks around them. There's Mm -hmm. all sorts of, some are really close white dwarf pairs where the two white dwarfs are kind of almost touching and orbiting Mm. um, towards each other. They're very strong gravitational wave sources. Double white also ultimately believed to some are believed to merge and become type one A supernovae,
2: which oh, are wow. used to oh, cosmology. Know you
5: know for uh, uh, distance measurement. So we're we're going to have a huge number of uh, white dwarfs to look at mm-hmm. uh, from the Gaia project, which will want follow up. Yeah, which is what we're perfect for doing with mm-hmm. with, with help HyperCam and UltraCam. Uh, and the same can be said, to be honest, of, of other wavelengths. Um, for example, the millisecond pulsars that I was mentioning in the talk. Um, the Fermi Sat gamma ray satellites currently up there taking data and uh, found loads of new millisecond pulsars. Mm. Previously, only a handful were known, and uh, now I guess, hundreds. So uh, it, it's really uh, improved that, and all of those require optical follow up. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I, th- I think it's kind of more of the same, but we, we're we're going to have. Fainter examples of mm-hmm. of every type, which means that the odd, really interesting exotica that we that really teach you new things. There's going to be more examples of those that we're going to be able to start studying. So
4: you're going to see the whole population of yeah, things. Yeah, exactly.
5: Or? Yeah, we've only really just really brushed the surface. I think mm. at the moment with ultracam.
4: It sounds like you're going to have a lot to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any plans to um, have your instrument on any of the really big instruments that are coming? A uh, really big telescopes that are coming through. So there's like the EELT, I think, which is like a thirty 39- nine. We yes. telescope.
5: Yeah. yeah. Um, no, we haven't got plans for that. Um, that's really difficult because we have been involved, actually, in discussions with ELT uh, about high-speed capability. Yeah. But the ELT is only going to have two instruments at first light, mm. which is 2025 or something. Mm. It's still a little
4: be. way away. Yeah. yeah.
5: And those two instruments, are, there's a multi-object infrared spectrograph called Harmony. Mm and then there's an infrared imaging camera so it's very much geared towards the infrared for uh, the first right. line okay. instruments i didn't realize that and yeah. um yeah the i think at the moment they're not considering a visitor focus mm. and they're certainly not considering a common user instrument which can do f- high speed optical yeah. uh, imaging so yeah so, so 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 i don't i don't not, see it in the yeah. near mm-hmm. future you know it, it'll be for the next generation of astronomers to to, to be building mm-hmm. high-speed instruments for the ELT, you know, when they start hopefully accepting visitor yep, things in the future, yep. in the future
4: yeah. yeah. It does sound like you've got more than enough to do before then yeah, anyway. We, we've, so,
5: yeah, we, we've barely mm-hmm. scratched the surface with 8- to 10-metre class telescopes, mm-hmm. to be honest, because we've predominantly been on 4-metre class. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's still a lot to do on the, on, mm-hmm. the, on the next size up before we think about the absolutely largest ones. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's a very yeah. good point.
4: Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I think that's part it for me. So thank you very much for coming on the DrudgeCast again. Well, thank you for inviting me. And um, hopefully we'll um, see you again when you've got some results from Hypercam and we can see how the project's going.
3: Thank you very much. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that, Monique.
4: Now we come to the part of the
0: show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends.
3: So uh, I'll go first with this little uh, ramble about Martian aurorae. So I was at a summer school recently, and I met someone who was studying the Martian atmosphere. And he told me this cool little fact that set off my like, sci-fi juices, um, which was that <laughs> the magnetic field on Mars is so weak in places that it dips inside the surface. But, well, obviously we know that the Mars uh, magne- magnetic field is very weak. So I guess it would be better to say the other way around. Sometimes it comes out through the surface, and you get these little bubbles of magnetic field. And in there, you get these really interesting plasma interactions with the solar wind. So you can get these tiny little pockets of aurorae on the surface, which I thought was really cool. Wow. (laughs) And um, I was reminded of it this week by the Elon Musk announcement that he's planning on sending humans to Mars by 2022 or
0: something.
1: something. Yeah, the next six years, wasn't it?
3: Yeah.
0: So so if if he succeeds at that, what do you think those would look like on the surface? Like, is it just like little bubbles of northern lights?
3: Right. So I, I looked into this and... Turns out it's quite a complicated answer. We don't really know. Um, <laughs> so the, the field that exists on Mars is remnants of the old dipole. So there used to be a dynamo mechanism like, they ha- like we have on Earth. There's debate about why it stopped, but they think that a massive Pluto-sized object smashed into the surface of Mars in the Northern Hemisphere. Oh, my goodness. Which is why the Northern surface is volcanic and smooth.
0: Right. Whereas,
3: and at lower le- elevation. And the lower surface is more rocky mm-hmm. um, and okay. at a higher elevation. And also, the dipole has, it hasn't has permeated the rock in the north as much as it has in the south. Oh, okay.
0: Interesting. So
3: you've got this this magnetized rock in the south and, and very little of it in the north.
0: Wow, okay.
3: Um, and then you also have the solar wind being draped over the planet. And just the act of that dragging over the surface um, induces a magnetic field.
0: So... It just doesn't sound like a very nice place to go.
3: No, not particularly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the aurorae are really pretty. Yeah, yeah. And I salute Ellen lost, um valiant uh, yeah. attempts to go there. But wow, it sounds yeah. a bit unfriendly.
3: <laughs> Definitely. Um, so either it's you could get aurorae across the whole sky, like these diffuse aurorae uh-huh. that they have observed um, on okay. Mars. Quite low altitudes as well, so it'd be incredibly bright if you could wow. see them. Yeah. But we've only seen it in UV so far with right. from orbital um, satellites. Uh, and I tried to have a look and see where would be the best place for Elon's guys to go if they wanted to.
0: <laughs> a landing site. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
3: and I, I reckon that if they go to the site of Mar- the Mars 3 lander, which is oh. a 1971 Russian um, space program, which is near something that just has the best name ever. Mount Atlantis Chaos. <laughs> Brilliant. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Mount Atlantis by, uh, my new chaos. Band. I'm just yeah. <laughs> I think uh, it's what I'm gonna call my new cat. <laughs> <laughs> very majestic name. Yeah, me.
0: absolutely. Cats should have majestic names. <laughs> I'll add it to the long list of names for cats that I'm going to have
3: in the yeah. future. <laughs> uh, so this mountain, it's in the southern hemisphere of Mars. You can actually go you can look at it on Google Mars. Wait, it, wait, it,
0: whoa. Google Mars.
3: Yeah.
0: Is that a thing? Mm, yeah. yeah. No, really.
3: <laughs> it's like Google Maps or Google Earth but for Mars. Do they have street view? Uh, they don't. Have <sighs> <street> view. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Just they the do. tourist attractions.
0: Will <laughs> they tell me where the nearest Starbucks is? <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, but you can you can search on there for different features like mountains cool. and valleys and and locations that have appeared in stories and things like oh, that it's wonderful. really good That's excellent. but this place it's basically around the point where the field that currently exists in the southern hemisphere is along the polarity inversion line there so you're going to get you you could get some form of particle trapping which is what causes the north-south aurora on earth mm. is you get charged particles that bounce between the north and south pole and as they get closer to the atmosphere just before they bounce they strike it, and then we get huh, the aurora. Wow. They bounce back to the south. And you could get that on a very s- small scale yeah. uh, around this point, so you could see uh, very fast aurora oscillating back and forth. Cool. Wow. But yeah, that's, uh, that's my advice to them. Um,
0: yeah, well, you're a mine of information. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but yeah, I just thought that was really cool, that you could have Absolutely. some sort of, like... Because they have trips out in Norway to go and see the to Northern Mars. Lights. No, no, not to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> but if you were on Mars, you could have like a sort of you know go hunting in the desert for little like, like, a like a storm chasers on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Aurora chasers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, let's move it along to Adam.
1: Okay, so my odd end is sort of housekeeping, but today at Jodrell. We are hosting the first ever Jodcast Busy Day. Ah. A bunch of people who aren't currently recording the Jodcast are sat in a room, busily writing bits of code and tidying up the Jodcast machine. As some of you will know, recently the Jodcast machine died.
0: And then we couldn't find it. And then we couldn't find it. Like, (laughs) does
1: anyone know what the machine looks like or where it
2: is? Nope. Oh, dear. (laughs) um, In
1: a bid to make the Jogcast a bit slicker and a bit more efficient, because as you can imagine, we're we're, 10 and a half years old now Uh, or something. mm. Um, There's a lot of accumulated stuff and wisdom that's been passed down from Jodcast <laughs> presenter to Jodcast presenter yeah. without ever properly being written down. Although there are documentation, but I mean
3: we didn't know where that was either. So yeah, well we found documentation now. There is some documentation. Excellent. But I guess yeah, so
0: they're kind of writing the first book of Jodcast today. Yeah. Day, that's and that's it. what's like, happening.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um so that is in a bid to make this whole operation a bit slicker and make sure there aren't any uh Discontinuities, I guess, when the drug test gets handed on again, because I think it's coming to that time again where it is. Charlie and Ben are going to be looking for their heirs. Oh right.
0: yeah, their no. unwitting heirs. Uh, yeah,
1: I was I was shocked when when Charlie said that. I was like, no, you've just started your PhD. It's like, no, no, no. no.
0: I'm nearly finished my PhD. It's terrifying. It's a scary time, uh, but uh, but yeah, no. So I've I've seen them scurrying about up there in the in the meeting room. They're like Fiona, why aren't you at the busy day? And I was like, because I'm going to go record the podcast. Yeah. I'm already busy. <laughs> and in fact, it's a very busy day here um, at the Turing Building generally because um, we've been watching the Rosetta mission. Yep, mm-hmm. um, which was very exciting. So there's just a lot. I of missed stuff it. Weekend. I
3: was teaching labs and I, <sighs> I had it up on my laptop and I was like, oh, it's going to happen yeah. in about half an hour. And I came back and it was I mean, just...
0: honestly, it was pretty unreal. Yeah. Um.
1: <laughs> oh, it, it was it was, yeah. it was a transmission spike with a couple of side lobes at either side yeah. and they were just tracking that and then it went flat and yeah. you knew that it <laughs> so i mean in in a, like a couple of hours or so when they've processed all the images that'll be exciting because yeah. i think mean, they were taking yeah. them as they went down but mm-hmm. just watching
0: yeah because yeah. i so i thought mm-hmm. like i don't know to have like a front-facing camera on it or something when yeah. <laughs> you do London right. on a plane exactly sometimes. yeah oh god that really unnerves me but yeah <laughs> I thought we'd get to see that for Rosetta but yeah. no we didn't I mean understandably that would be completely unfeasible impossible <laughs> Uh, so but yeah, yeah no, so we a,
1: were, we yeah. were sat in the in the lecture theater watching that noise yeah. Spike basically and, and then,
0: then and then and then I hooshed everyone out so we could record the podcast. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then we have to get out cuz they're setting up a party in a, yeah, in a little yeah, while. Yeah. Exactly. So, so
0: let's say uh, in in that case let's move things along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so finally, uh my odd and end today is um a little bit tongue in cheek. <laughs> so, the whole world is in turmoil and chaos. Your future is completely uncertain you might not even know who you are anymore because they've added a 13th star sign to the horoscope and everything is just completely upended. Like, I don't even know how to think anymore. So the (laughs) new... (laughs) It just changes everything about, like, our whole lives and research and astronomy and everything. It's awful. Um, So the new star sign is called Ophiuchus, which is actually a a very dear constellation to me um, because there's a very famous nova in Ophiuchus and I've... our keen listeners might remember that Novae are my uh, f- f- field, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so while I've never studied Nova Afuji myself, other people have, including my supervisor, who who's written a lot of stuff about it. But it's really exciting because it kind of recurs and it does a bunch of really interesting stuff. Mm. And it's it's a very nice one. It explodes every few years, and we can go oh, look at it there. So. But anyway, anyway, I'm getting sidetracked for the real issue. It's also a good
3: um, cool star sign to have. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's a very explodey star sign. Um, yes, How um... do I get it? <laughs> <laughs> well, so so if you are if you are one of the lucky people whose birthday falls between November 29th and December 17th, then your new star sign is Ophiuchus. Mm. Now, Ophiuchus is the snake bearer, though he's a dude. They have a picture of him here. Uh, he's a dude who goes around carrying a snake As far as I can tell, that's uh, pretty much what he's got going for him. Good job to have. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Potentially more exciting than astronomer. (laughs) Um, And the prediction they've made this month for Ophiuchus is, uh, so do you like snakes? I hope you like snakes because, uh, well, let's just say you've got some snakes in your immediate future. (laughs) So if your birthday falls between the 29th of November and the 17th of December, um. Yeah, maybe maybe you'll uh, maybe you'll be like that woman who found a snake behind her washing machine. Like she lived somewhere in England, and someone had a pet snake and it escaped. And it I ended.
3: didn't hear that.
0: Story. I think it's I think it's kind of not a real story. I think it's like <laughs> an urban myth. But there's an urban myth that you know people have pet snakes and then they escape and yeah, they get into yeah. other people's houses. So maybe maybe maybe. If, maybe if your star sign is off, you just watch out for um, rogue snakes. So then, what's really especially kind of chaotic and exciting about this is that all the other star signs dates have changed slightly. So what used to be your star sign before (laughs) might not be your star sign now. So like you might have thought you knew who you were and you might have thought you knew (laughs) what your future looked like but all of that is now up in the air. So I encourage you, we'll put a link in the show notes and I encourage you to immediately check it and check Mm. what your new star sign is. Now I'm still a Virgo I can confirm. Only just about um, so I'm only just making the cut to still be a Virgo, and uh, my star sign this month says, um, oh dear, <laughs> oh yeah, this one's pretty bad. Better stay indoors. Seriously, don't go outside for like four weeks, and definitely avoid any and all Libras. <laughs> <laughs> I better go home right you don't now. Have any Libras in the room, <laughs> there's no Libras in the room. <laughs> Make sure there's no Libras in the department. <laughs>
3: Well, um, mine's changed from from Leo to Cancer, and I'm quite sad about that because I, I quite like Leo.
0: Yeah, Leo's no, Leo's an exciting yeah. one. So I was hoping to make the cut to be a Leo, but I didn't. <laughs> um, but quite Adam, a
3: lot of Leo.
1: I'm still a Leo. You're still
0: a Leo. Well, so there's yeah. Quite a lot
1: of Leos in the department. I think oh, is that. Leos are good one for, whole, for, astronomers, for astronomers. yeah. yeah. if you're into that kind of thing (laughs) so what is the do we know yet the uptake from astrologers within various newspapers as to whether they're
3: going to
0: listen to
3: who who regulates this
0: (laughs) Um, I've heard from actually a former Jodcaster Josie Peters um, uh, was talking about this on her YouTube channel also and I don't know what all the kind of main media outlets have to say about it but I know Cosmopolitan are up in arms
1: (laughs) I mean, it's going to make that column of newspapers
3: slightly longer. A bit longer. Right? So There's are going less to advertising change space. everything.
0: <laughs> so, I also, mean, the whole economy could collapse. Yeah.
3: Well, they're going to have to write new ones as well. Or maybe that's why they did it. Because the rumor is they wrote them all back in the 80s as like one block and they just sort of cycle them out and no <laughs> oh. one notices. So maybe, you know, they're not getting paid anymore. We need to, we, we need, need to sell check something us up. new. Yeah, yeah. Shake yeah. Right. up the could whole could industry. It's a conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, anyway, um, I encourage all our listeners to immediately go and check what your new star sign is. Um, It's very important. Just perpetuating
3: the confusion between astronomy and astrology. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's
0: true. I'm terribly sorry, except I'm not. (laughs) Okay.
3: Okay, and
1: now from horoscopes to our own oracle, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Northern Night Sky.
6: The night sky for October 2016. Well, we're in a bit of an intermediate phase now between the time when the summer constellations of Lyra, Cygnus and Aquila dominate the southern sky. And then in a few more months, we'll have Taurus and Orion and so on. So as darkness falls, and of course it falls a bit earlier every night as we go through the month, one can still see that summer region, the highest star being Deneb in Cygnus, a little over to its right is Vega. And below them, down towards the southwestern horizon, you'll see Altair in Aquila. I'm sure you know those three stars make up what's called the Summer Triangle, but we can actually see it quite a long time into the autumn. If you, with binoculars perhaps, on a dark night, work upwards about a third of the way from Altair to Vega, you should spot a rather lovely asterism. It's called Brocci's Cluster, or the coat hanger, because it looks just like an upside-down coat hanger. And up to the left of Altair, below Cygnus, nice little constellation, I like it, it's called Delphinus the Dolphin. That's worth looking out for. As you move over to the southern sky, there aren't so many bright stars visible, but there is the square of Pegasus, the upside-down winged horse. The top left-hand star of the square, Rats, is actually Alpha Andromedae, So it's in the constellation of Andromeda. And it's the starting point for finding the lovely galaxy M31 Andromeda. You just move one fairly bright star to the left, fork right a little bit to the second bright star, then turn sharp right, go a further star, and the same distance again, you should see the fuzzy glow of Andromeda. Andromeda is the only galaxy we can actually see with our unaided eyes. With binoculars, it'll be clearer still. It's a lovely sight in a small, relatively low-power telescope. Above the galaxy Andromeda is, in fact, the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. And, in fact, the three stars that make up the sort of the V-shaped, at the lower right, they actually point down to Andromeda Galaxy, making it another way to find it. And then further over, towards the east, there should be visible a bright yellow star, which is Capella in Auriga, and below that, the orange star, the red giant Aldebaran in Taurus, as those winter constellations come into view. So what about the planets? Well, we can in principle see all of them this month, but I think none of them particularly well. Jupiter, in fact, passed behind the Sun last month and will appear again low above the eastern horizon around the 8th of October. On the 11th, at magnitude minus 1.7, it lies close to Mercury, but there will only be about 5 degrees above the horizon 30 minutes before sunrise. As the month progresses, Jupiter rises a little earlier, so, still at magnitude minus 1.7, by the end of October it rises some two and a half hours before the Sun. As the Earth moves towards Jupiter, the size of Jupiter's disk increases slightly, from 13.6 to 31.2 arc seconds. So, early risers at the end of the month should be able to observe the equatorial bands in the atmosphere and some of the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Saturn. On September the 11th, Saturn, lying in Ophiuchus, will be just six degrees above and a little to the left of Antares in Scorpius. It's moving slowly eastwards, but by October's end will still be only seven degrees distant. Its brightness stays constant during the month at about plus 0.5, whilst its angular size drops slightly from 15.9 to 15.4 arcseconds. However, the rings are almost at their most open, at 26 degrees from edge on, so still make a magnificent sight. Some 20 degrees above the southwestern horizon at the start of October, an hour after sunset, it will fall during the month just 10 degrees above the horizon. And so... The first few weeks of this month are really our last chance to observe it during this apparition, as it's called. Well, Mercury is just past the peak of its best morning apparition as October begins, shining at magnitude minus 0.8, some 8 degrees above the eastern horizon, 45 minutes before sunrise. On the 11th, at magnitude minus 1.1, it will lie just 0.8 degrees to the left of Jupiter. Its disk will then have an angular diameter of 5 arc seconds. Mercury will appear a little lower each morning, becoming lost in the sun's glare by mid-month, as it moves towards superior conjunction with the sun on the 27th. Mars Lying in Sagittarius reaches its lowest declination if at minus twenty five degrees on October the third, and so will obviously be low above the horizon in fact some nine degrees above the horizon in the south southwestern sky as twilight ends, fading from magnitude plus one to plus point four during the month with the disc shrinking to just eight arc seconds across also due to its low elevation it will only appear as a featureless salmon pink object. It starts the month to the lower left of the Lagoon Nebula, M8, and on the 6th passes close to the top star making up the teapot. is called Lambda Sagittarii. In the last two weeks of October, it passes over the teapot's handle as it moves eastwards across the heavens. It will actually lie closest to the sun, on the twenty ninth of the month. Venus can be viewed low in the southwest after sunset, starting the month in Libra with a magnitude of minus three point nine. On the seventeenth it passes into Scorpius, and then on the twenty fifth into Ophiuchus. As it does so it will rise a little higher in the sky, but despite its brightness, binoculars might well be needed to spot it but please do not use them until after the sun has set during the month its angular size increases from 12 to 14 arc seconds whilst the illuminated percentage of its disk falls from 86 to 78% those two factors compensate each other which is why venus's brightness stays virtually constant throughout the whole of its apparition at about minus 4 magnitude On the 5th of October, Venus passes just below the wide double star Alpha Librae, whilst on the 20th it passes very close to Delta Scorpiae, forming part of the Scorpion's head. What about some highlights? Well, in fact, October is a good month to observe Uranus with a small telescope. It comes into opposition, that's when it's nearest to the Earth, and roughly due south at midnight on the night of the 15th of October. So it can be well seen all of this month, particularly around the beginning and end of the month, when the moonlight will not intrude. Its magnitude is plus 5.9, so Uranus should be easily spotted in binoculars, lying in the southern part of Pisces, to the east of the circlet asterism, and east-southeast, of the fourth magnitude stars Epsilon Piscium and Delta Piscium. On the night sky page on the Jodrell Bank website, I give a chart to help you find it. It rises to an elevation of about 45 degrees when due south, and given a telescope of four inches or so, it should be possible to see it has a disk, just 3.6 arc seconds across, which has a pale green blue tint. With an 8-inch telescope and perhaps a green filter, you might even see some details in the planet's cloud features. That won't be easy to spot. And you might even find you can see four of its satellites, Ariel, Umbriel, Titania and Oberon, all at magnitude around plus 14. On October 3rd, after sunset, as twilight fades on the 3rd of October and given clear skies and a very low horizon in the southwest, you may be able to spot Venus lying down to the left of a very thin crescent moon, just 6.7% illuminated. Now this gives you a chance of observing Earthshine, the dark side of the moon faintly illuminated by light reflected from the Earth. After sunset on October the eighth, looking south and given clear skies, the first quarter moon will be visible, lying up to the left of Mars, which will be shining at magnitude plus point one five. Mars, then in Sagittarius, is lying just to the left of the top star of the teapot, Lambda Sagittarii. On October the eleventh, thirty minutes before sunrise given a low horizon to the east and clear skies, you should be able to see Mercury at magnitude minus 1.1, less than one degree to the left of Jupiter, which has a magnitude of minus 1.7. On October the 27th, after sunset, if you look low in the southwest and given a low horizon, you should, if clear, be able to spot a nice near vertical line-up of Saturn, the highest with a magnitude of plus naught point five below which is Venus at magnitude minus four, and at the lowest point Antares at magnitude plus one, Venus is a hundred times brighter than Antares, as by definition a five magnitude difference in this case from minus four to plus one. Corresponds to a brightness ratio of a hundred. I usually try and say something about an interesting region of the moon, and on October the 22nd, the crater Cassini and a mountain called Mons Piton are fairly easy to spot, not far from the terminator. Mons Piton is an isolated lunar mountain located in the eastern part of Mare Imbrium, southeast of the crater Plato. And west of the crater Cassini. It has a diameter of about 25 kilometers and a height of 2.3 kilometers, and the height was determined by the length of the shadow it casts. Cassini is a 57 kilometer diameter crater that has been flooded with lava. The crater floor has then been impacted many times and holds within its borders to further significant craters, Cassini A, the larger, and Cassini B. Well, that's quite a lot to look at during this month. I think no obvious meteor showers, but we just have to wait until November. I hope you have some enjoyable nights viewing the heavens.
3: Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Bretherton with The Night Sky Where You Are.
7: Kia and welcome to the October Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. October is a good time to look out for the zodiacal light, seen as a triangular glow in the west after sunset in a clear dark sky. It is caused by light reflecting off dust along the plane of our solar system. This plane is marked by the ecliptic, the apparent path of the sun across the sky, which runs through the constellations of the zodiac. At this time of the year, the ecliptic makes a steep angle with the horizon, making the zodiacal light easier to observe. As our nights are getting lighter and our days warmer, our winter zodiac constellation of Scorpius or temato Amaui drops down towards the horizon, taking cream-coloured Saturn with it. Saturn sits to the right of orange Antares, and with its 29.5-year orbit around the Sun, moves very little against the background sky. The pair set shortly before 11pm by the end of the month. In sharp contrast, Venus, with its 225-day orbit, moves quickly eastwards against the background stars, appearing higher and higher in the western evening sky. By the end of the month, it passes between Saturn and Antares, setting over three hours after the Sun. Red Mars is higher still, and continues to hold its position well this month, moving through the constellation of Sagittarius and setting after around 2am. As we move away from Mars on our inner orbit, it is slowly slipping down the sky and gradually becoming fainter, but it will remain in our evening skies well into the new year. If you have a good pair of binoculars or a small telescope, you might want to look out for another planet this month, Uranus, the second most distant planet in the solar system, reaches opposition on Saturday the 15th. This is when Uranus lies on the opposite side of the Earth to the Sun, reaching its highest point in our skies at around midnight. It is also around this time that the Earth and Uranus are at their closest, although this won't make too much difference to the planet's brightness from our point of view. Uranus will be above the horizon for much of the night, shining at magnitude 5.7 in the constellation of Pisces, the fishes. On a very dark, clear night, it may just be possible to glimpse Uranus with the naked eye, but a full moon close to the time of opposition will make this impossible at that time. Better to look at either the start or end of the month closer to the new moon. With binoculars, however, Uranus should be relatively easy to spot, as long as you know where to look, although it will appear as just a star-like point of light without the use of a telescope. A little to the north of Pisces is the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, which appears to leap across the northern horizon in our evening sky. Pegasus is easy to spot by the great square of stars that makes up his body. The brightest star in the constellation is the reddish star Epsilon Pegasi, marking the horse's muzzle. This star is commonly known as Enif, deriving from the Arabic word for nose. Epsilon Pegasi is an orange supergiant, around 12 times the mass of the sun, and with a radius some 185 times larger. Nearby, and visible in the same binocular field of view, is the globular cluster M15, one of the oldest and best-known star clusters in the sky, with an estimated age of around 12 billion years. The cluster is located around 34,000 light-years away, and measures 175 light-years across. M15 is probably the most densely packed globular cluster in our galaxy with half of its mass concentrated within 10 light-years of the centre. It has been suggested that this massive concentration of stars may be caused by a rare type of supermassive black hole in the cluster's core. With binoculars, M15 will appear as a fuzzy star, whilst a medium-sized or larger telescope will reveal individual stars, particularly towards the outer regions, appearing as chains and streams radiating out from the core. M15 also contains the planetary nebula P1, the first to be found within a globular cluster. At magnitude 15.5, this is a faint object, and a telescope with an aperture of at least 300 millimeters would be needed to observe it. The star at the bottom right of the Great Square of Pegasus is in fact Alpha Andromedae, or Alpha Rats, the brightest star in the constellation of Andromeda. Located some 97 light-years away from Earth, it is a spectroscopic binary star, whose two components orbit each other in just 100 days. Alpha Rats is a great starting point to star-hop to the great galaxy in Andromeda, or M31. The nearest large spiral galaxy to our own, M31 makes a rare appearance in our southern hemisphere skies at this time of year. But you'll need a good dark sky and a clear view of the northern horizon to spot it. The further north you go, the better your chances of finding it. From Alpharats, look for two chains of stars extending out to the east. Hop along the uppermost and brightest of these chains, past Delta Andromedae, to Mirac, which is Beta Andromedae, and then turn sharp right and head down to Mu Andromedae, before jumping on the same distance again to find the galaxy. The Andromeda galaxy covers an area around six times the diameter of the full moon, but only the brighter central region is easily visible to the naked eye, or with binoculars or a small telescope. At 2.5 million light-years away and magnitude 3.4, M31 is the most distant object easily visible to the naked eye. Andromeda is thought to contain around 1 trillion stars, well over twice the number estimated in our own Milky Way. Some recent studies, however, have suggested that the Milky Way may contain more dark matter than Andromeda, giving the two galaxies a similar mass. M31 is approaching the Milky Way at 110 kilometers per second, and is expected to collide and merge with our galaxy in around 4 billion years. A little higher and towards the east, the Triangulum Galaxy, or M33, is better placed in our skies. At around 3 million light-years from Earth and shining at magnitude 5.7, it is just at the limit of naked-eye visibility under excellent conditions, making it one of the most distant objects able to be glimpsed unaided. With the mass of tens of billions of suns, M33 is the third largest member of the local group. Like the Andromeda galaxy, it is also approaching us at around 100,000 kilometres per hour. To find M33, head back from Andromeda towards Mirach and then continue a similar distance to the other side. Whilst M33 with the naked eye is a challenge, it is easily observable in a pair of binoculars. The most striking feature of the Triangulum Galaxy is a massive region of star formation known as NGC 604, which can be seen with a small telescope. NGC 604 is 100 times larger than the Orion Nebula and contains over 200 hot, massive blue stars formed just 3 million years ago. In fact, if it were at the same distance as the Orion Nebula, only the Moon would be brighter in the nighttime sky. Of course, there are two galaxies that are always visible in our night sky the large and small Magellanic clouds, which are circumpolar here in New Zealand. To find the Magellanic clouds, first look for the bright star Canopus, twinkling colourfully low in the southeast. The Magellanic clouds appear as two small smudges of light above it. They are irregular dwarf galaxies that neighbour our own. Whilst these galaxies are much smaller than the Milky Way, they still contain hundreds of millions of stars. The Large Magellanic Cloud, or LMC, is the lower of the two and is located 160,000 light-years away. Through binoculars or a small telescope, you may be able to spot a number of young star clusters visible as small patches of light. The LMC also contains a massive star formation region, one of the largest and brightest known, called the Tarantula Nebula, or 30 Doradus, Spanning around 600 light-years across and covering 13 arc minutes in the sky, The Tarantula Nebula contains over 800,000 stars and protostars and is the most active starburst region identified within our local group of galaxies. If it were placed at the same distance as the Orion Nebula, it would be so bright that it would cast a shadow here on Earth. The star formation activity within the Tarantula Nebula began a few tens of millions of years ago, and some of the largest and brightest stars born within this region have already reached the ends of their short lives. In February 1987, supernova SN 1987A was discovered in the outskirts of the Tarantula Nebula by astronomers at Las Campanas Observatory in Chile, and independently by prolific amateur astronomer Albert Jones here in New Zealand. This supernova was the closest since the invention of the telescope just over 400 years ago, and provided a unique opportunity for astronomers to study such an event in unprecedented detail. Reaching a peak magnitude of around 3, SN 1987A was easily bright enough to spot with the naked eye. Smaller and more distant at around 200,000 light-years is the Small Magellanic Cloud, or SMC. To the top right of this galaxy, you may spot a faint, fuzzy star. This object is not actually associated with the SMC, but is a beautiful globular cluster called 47 Tucani, or NGC104 and is actually located just a tenth of the distance away on the outskirts of our own galaxy. At magnitude 4.9, it's the second brightest globular cluster in the sky, after Omega Centauri, and can be easily seen with the naked eye. With binoculars or a small telescope, it is a wonderful sight, revealing a densely packed central core, whilst larger telescopes will start to resolve some of its millions of ancient stars. Wishing you clear skies and happy galaxy hunting from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory.
3: Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback.
0: Well, we got no posts and we got no Twitters and uh, really we don't have any feedback at all except for all your likes on Facebook, which we greatly appreciate. And um, thanks for all our new followers on Twitter and um, thanks for all the retweets and favourites.
3: Okay, and if you want to get in touch... You can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net
0: On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast
3: On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast
0: On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast
1: And don't forget you can send us post. The address is on the website.
0: Thanks to Professor Vic Dillon for the interview. The editors were Tom Armitage, Thomas Scrag, Damian Trim and Charlie Walker. And the producer was Charlie Walker. Until next time, it on!